Welcome back to Ready, Set, Scale, a ScanSource podcast series focused on how to buy, sell, and use technology solutions in different markets. Thank you to our government vertical sponsors, Cisco, Zebra, Avaya, CyberPower, Jabra, Honeywell, Holly, Star, and Tyco Exec. Stay tuned to learn more about how these sponsors can help you discover new opportunities in government. In today's episode, we'll hear from Ron Asana, economic and market contributor for CNBC and MSNBC, and John Ryder, Senior Director of Federal Sales at ScanSource. They joined us earlier for one of our ScanSource Power Hours, where Ron gave an in-depth overview of where governments are currently and potentially investing in various verticals. Ron, your background is not only impressive, but incredibly pertinent to our current vertical focus on government. Can you share with me in the audience your experience within the government vertical? Sure. And I've had a lot. I mean, I spent 23 years full time as as an anchor and reporter at both Financial News Network and and, uh, CNBC. And that led me to the nation's capital on many different occasions to talk policy with a wide variety of individuals, including for a 10-year period conversations with Alan Greenspan every three months or so and talking about everything but monetary policy because he wouldn't answer those questions directly. But I think the event that stood out to me most in that entire experience, and of which there were many, during the financial crisis in 2008, uh, I at the time was working for a hedge fund, and we were on the phone with a senior government official and, and, and in a certain sense, it was not only the most eye-opening experience I had, but maybe in some ways the scariest. The government at the time was allocating some $700 billion to the TARP program, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, that was designed to help the banks get out from under all these bad uh, debts that they had, uh, mortgage-related debts. And we were asked on a phone call rather quickly and succinctly to offer our single best idea on how to spend $700 billion. And so the government was canvassing Wall Street and I'm sitting here and look, I've, I've been around and I've, and I've been around government and I've been around markets you know, my whole adult life. And I will say that in 2008, I was, I was terrified that even though Washington very often canvasses Wall Street for points of view, what I took away from the conversation was no one had any idea what was going on or how to fix the problem. And I think that was one of the scariest conversations I ever had insofar as I was one of five people, and and we were fairly unified in our view of what what to do with the money, but I was one of five people in the room giving advice to the government on how to handle a financial crisis. And that was one of those moments where you just kind of sit and you're like, okay, I'm being asked this question. I mean, they can't they can't find anybody better, you know. And and good lord, they really have no idea what the underpinnings of this problem might be and they could easily misallocate 700 billion dollars and 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 make it worse rather than make it better. So it was a it was an eye opener and it was it was a little nerve-wracking to say the least. I think you touched on this a little bit but maybe not the craziest but or most interesting but a topic that you've ever investigated or reported on in your career. 9/11 stands out in a wide variety of ways. Number one, I, along with a producer from MSNBC who were at the site, almost got killed that day when the buildings came down. And then afterwards, the follow-up reporting that we were doing down in the zone. Uh, I went back the day after to interview Dick Grasso on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange to see when the market would reopen. And we did a simulcast of that on NBC's Today Show and CNBC. And this is at a time when Seven World Trade hadn't fallen yet, and the military were out, and 
it still looked like a nuclear winter down on Wall Street. And just going back down there and being alone with Dick on the floor and having that conversation was was mind bending in in a certain sense. I think you know some of the others that maybe you know certainly while important for me, but 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 lighter were presidential interviews, which I always found to be fascinating because they're it, it varies from administration to administration. With the Clintons, once you were established as as a potential interviewer, the process was a little less formal in a certain sense than you might imagine. I remember when at, toward the end of uh, Bill Clinton's presidency, Jeff Zucker, who was my boss at NBC, said, hey, listen, we're about to hit 22 million jobs. Do you think you can get the president to come on the Today Show? So I called a friend of mine at the White House. I said, hey, does the president want to do an interview on the Today Show about 22 million jobs? He's like, yeah, when? I was like, well, later this week. Sure, fine. <laughs> and then with George <laughs> Bush, there was an entirely different gauntlet you had to run through. And, and, and it was much more formal. You went through Andy Carr to his chief of staff. You went through Carl Rove. You went through Dan Bartlett. You know, and my first interview got tanked because I said I, I wouldn't ask just a single question about Harkin and Halliburton, which were on the front pages at the time involving both the president and the vice president. And so my interview got scrubbed like a day before, actually an hour before I was supposed to go do it. And it took me a year to get it back. And so, wow. it, it, do you know, going down those channels are often very interesting. And the flip side is having great relationships with guys like Bob Rubin or Alan Greenspan, where if you call them up and you say, hey, listen, you know, can we get together? They'd be like, sure, come on down. Or in one instance, which is actually pretty funny, Time Magazine in 1999 had a cover story about the committee that saved the world during the long-term capital crisis. And on the cover was Alan Greenspan, Bob Rubin, and Larry Summers. And I was having lunch with Treasury Secretary Rubin on this one day. And he was about to exit. The job was going to Larry Summers. So I brought the cover with me and I asked Bob if he would sign the cover. And I'd actually seen Larry first. So Larry signed his forehead and then Bob signed his forehead. <laughs> and as I was leaving Washington, I called the Fed and I said, listen, I'm on my way out. I got Bob and Larry to sign their faces on the cover. Does, does the chairman have any time? And my friend, Michelle Smith, who used to be his top communications person, asked Mr. Greenspan if, if, if he had time. He said, come on by. So I, I drove by the Fed. Alan signed his head. And I've got in my office a picture of, of the Committee to Save the World and all three gentlemen signed their forehead. It's a great looking thing. And it was just one of these kind of frivolous moments that you get to have if you're if you're kind of in the loop at any given point in time. Thanks for sharing all that you have. We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Uh, I also interviewed Ozzy Osbourne and his wife at one time at the New York Stock Exchange. That was a unique experience. <laughs> 20 minutes of not understanding what another human being says is, is fascinating on its own. Well, then you've covered all the ground, it sounds like. <laughs> exactly. So great anecdotes, great examples, insights, of course. Your experiences are awesome and, and great for people to, to hear and, and uh, relive on some level. Is there any one message from our discussion today that you would want folks to walk away with? Yeah, I think, look, at the end of the day, the environment in which we find ourselves, all kind of concerns about pandemics and things aside, business has to be increasingly forward-looking and change at a far more rapid speed than we've ever seen in the past. There, there is no sitting still. There is no failing to take advantage of either private or public sector opportunities. And I think that, and, and we've seen this, you know, during the pandemic, those, those folks who weren't ready for dislocation were blown off the map. And we saw 400,000 small businesses disappear during the pandemic. So I think every business requires a reevaluation of how they're operating what kind of backup systems they have, how technologically savvy they are, and how in many ways they can utilize a younger generation, whether straight out of high school or out of college, or even somebody with an associates to help them understand the technology that might be foreign to us 
as, you know, slightly older individuals. You know, I, what I see with kids is their fluency, even without a degree in coding or technology, is so phenomenal that they can do things with the snap of a finger. You know, the way we used to change or fix rabbit ears on the top of a TV, these kids are programming computers. So I would really look to the younger generation to help upgrade the technological skills of an existing business to ensure that you are a dual threat, whether you're, particularly if you're a bricks and mortar business, you need technology and you need some sophistication around it in order to survive any future disruptions. As you know, our partners have had to adapt to the challenge and opportunities of this past year and the ever-changing technology landscape. They are very interested to know, where can we expect the government to invest in 2021 and beyond? Well, I think we've already seen some of that uh, with respect to the, the government's commitment, and this is both at the, the federal and the congressional level of, of allocating some $80 billion to building out semiconductor infrastructure in the United States, wafer fabrication plants and foundries and the like, so that we're not as dependent on foreign supply chains, particularly from China and, and increasingly from Taiwan, should China make any moves there that would disrupt the flow of those critical computer chips to various markets, including our own. And as a consequence of the shortage, it was related to the pandemic. We've seen a lack of availability of new autos, used car prices going up rather dramatically. So at the start, we've already seen them take steps to help diversify supply chains and bring some manufacturing back to the United States. And beyond that, with the new infrastructure bill, clearly there are a wide number of areas in which the federal government is going to invest in the years ahead in order to make the U.S. economy more competitive. Great. Now, we're also seeing new programs that are coming out that are making a big impact, you know, such as the American Rescue Plan, yeah. the Emergency Connectivity Fund, the CARES Act, and of course, E-Rate, which has been around for, for a long time. Now, how do you see those funds being used in our industry? And you know, how can our partners take advantage of those dollars? Well, I think even more than those, although those are still extremely important, and some of the unused funds from those programs are now being rolled into the infrastructure package, which focuses rather directly on all the areas in which your audience is obviously interested, from hard infrastructure when it comes to you know, municipal, state, local types of investments in, 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 in what we have traditionally called infrastructure, roads, bridges, tunnels, and the like. We've also seen a rather significant commitment to building out broadband in rural communities and underprivileged communities or uh, communities where economic access has been somewhat wanting, to say the very least. And it's disrupted things like distance learning during the pandemic. There were kids who did not have access to broadband and, and as a consequence, had a very difficult time connecting with their schools and engaging in the distance learning program that we had to go through during the pandemic as well. And then beyond that, there's obviously cybersecurity. There are a whole host of issues in helping airlines and airports redevelop their infrastructure. And this package that is now likely going to pass this week in the Senate is very much focused on critical and hard infrastructure in future packages, which total three and a half trillion, then we're going to start seeing more money spent also on what they like to call soft infrastructure, which is providing relief for families at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder to have access to preschool, to, to have access to childcare and the like, so that people can get back to work and join the workforce with more confidence than they might have had over the last year and a half. So, Rob, we talked a little bit earlier about several programs, and, and there was the Infrastructure Act and, and some details around that. I, I think our partners would be really interested to know how that might play out and what it looks like, a little bit more detail. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, it, it, I, I assume it's going to pass in, in, intact uh, with maybe some, you know, minor changes around either financing or additional uh, programs that might be added to sweeten the pot for individual members of Congress. But broadly speaking, there is a great deal of money allocated towards, and this is a trillion dollar bill, half a trillion of which is brand new money. So we're spending in the neighborhood of $111 billion on road reconstruction, tunnels, bridges, all of which, as we know, you know, depending on where you live in the country, are e- either in disrepair or complete disrepair. And and the core kind of shovel-ready infrastructure projects that are required are going to be dealt with. There are also tens of billions of dollars for broadband accessibility in rural areas and in low-income areas that, through recently, just have not had adequate access to high-speed broadband, which, of course, is critical when you're looking at education and telemedicine and things like that. Beyond that, then there's money dedicated towards cybersecurity. There is money dedicated towards additional forms of of infrastructure that are are critical, removing, let's say, lead piping. Now, the president did not get nearly as much money to repipe the country where lead pipes are still in use, but there's money going towards that. And so we're seeing it both from... um, you know, kind of the traditional perspective where we're just doing, you know, roads, bridges, and tunnels, but we're also doing some of the interior infrastructure. There's money going to Amtrak, I believe about $66 billion so that the Northeast Corridor, which is the single most traveled network on Amtrak, is going to be upgraded as well. Also, mass transit in certain cities will be getting allocations too. And what's interesting about, let's say, the Excella, for instance, it is used more than the shuttle services, the air shuttle services that go between Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. And a lot of that you know, tracking, and it's true also for freight trains, which are getting some money as well, that tracking is so old and, and so in some cases unstable that we really require a fix to make the, the rail services much more expected. There's some incentives for uh, cleaner energy monies being spent on, I believe it is roughly 250000 electric charging stations in the United States for EVs. The president wanted 500,000, but in the midst of compromise, they clearly cut that in half. So we're, we're seeing some tilt also towards, you know, or nod to, I should say, uh, a green energy and also trying to convert federal cars, buses, mass transit vehicles from uh, the internal combustion engine to electric power solely. And so those are, are some of the main high points, I think, of the infrastructure bill. But the argument here is that that's simply not enough, which is why I think going forward, you're going to see a great deal of debate and the Democrats are going to try to pass this next bill through reconciliation of three and a half trillion dollars that deals with the softer side of infrastructure, universal pre-K, community college support for lower income families so that people can get to work safely while having their children taken care of as well. That's the next phase, probably more questionable. Infrastructure is, in my mind, going to get done. And those dollars, which again, total a trillion bucks over the next decade or so, or eight years, are going to get spent and create some pretty good paying jobs. What I wish they would have included, uh, but they didn't. And, And as much as we've spoken about this over the years, we're not burying power lines and we're not getting really telephone poles and telephone lines, which given the composition of our economy today, if you leave the United States, you don't see power lines above the ground in a lot of different places and and telephone lines aren't necessary when you're largely using cell phones. So it would, one, it would be great to get rid of the eyesore. Two, it would also be a real productivity enhancer if we didn't have transformers, you know, blowing up against the sky every time we got a storm. Uh, There is going to be some also support for rebuilding the electrical grid in that regard. It may not be necessarily bearing power lines, 
but they are trying to upgrade the grid so it is one, less vulnerable to uh, climate issues, and then two, to overloading like we've seen in certain states throughout the year. We've talked a little bit about both what you've mentioned, state and local entities and federal entities. And, you know, traditionally, IT spend has, has really been about 50-50 between those two parties, right? Yeah. Do you see that kind of continuing? Do you see any tilt there? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it depends on, on, you know, how effective the government can be going forward, particularly in this, you know, kind of hyper-partisan environment where if the government doesn't pass more in, in the way of support for a lot of these, it might be incumbent upon the private sector to invest even more dollars than they already have just because out of necessity, you know, particularly when it comes to cybersecurity, which I think is largely going to fall into the private sector hands. We are spending money at the federal level, but the federal government also has to protect itself from additional cybercrime. So they can't necessarily allocate all their money towards private sector when our systems in the federal government, whether it's the State Department, even the Defense Department, are, are really in many ways antiquated and need a massive upgrade. So I think those dollars would likely be spent in another supplemental bill on existing governmental infrastructure and private sector companies are going to have to deal with a lot of this, I think, on their own. And hopefully we'll find better solutions from some of the companies that are coming up with increasingly novel ways to prevent cyber attacks. That's great. So you touched on healthcare a little bit. Some of the things we've heard from our partners is that there's a more of a demand for telemedicine, yep. supportive technologies, vaccines, and it's growing. Where do you see that going? Well, I think you know a lot of that has to do with broadband access, right? You really cannot spread out telemedicine to the entire nation and make it available to the people who might live in some of the most remote areas or, again, may not have access to, to broadband capacity without laying those pipes or further dealing with that last mile, if you will, to the house, that connection that, that's required along with the capacity to have you know, video interactions with your doctor. And, and I think as we learned through the pandemic, that type of communication is becoming increasingly important. And, and from what we've heard from various technologists, this literally is from a healthcare perspective, the wave of the future. When you look at companies like Teladoc and others, you know there's so much that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis that doesn't require an office visit that there's going to be a lot of money poured into telemedicine insofar as pretty routine stuff, whether you have, you know, your kid has strep throat or whether you've got, you know, something that resembles a cold or a flu and doesn't really require a trek to the doctor's office. There is a lot they can do. And there's a lot of data they can store, which is also incredibly important. The data storage aspect of this is going to be critical as well. So that they maintain an ongoing computer file that your doctor can reference or your physician assistant can pull up and help the doctor make an assessment whether or not he needs to see you in person or whether he or she can deal with you in a virtual setting. And, and I think that it's an extremely exciting area where broadband technology comes into play and where also the capacity for storage and protecting the data are, are all increasingly important. Yeah, no, that, that definitely gives us a good feel for healthcare. You know, another market that uh, folks have been asking a whole lot about is education, which you also touched on a little bit there too. There's been a big spotlight on kids returning to school, teachers adapting to a hybrid environment, distance learning, and of course the associated networking infrastructure for those schools. Are you seeing any new economic opportunities and trends around education as well? Yeah, in the infrastructure bill, I think that's being addressed rather squarely with respect to broadband access in rural communities and in low-income communities, where again, typically the access goes wanting. Now, I think also what may be more incumbent upon the school systems themselves is to develop a curriculum that can survive the distance experience. We know both from personal experience and from what we've we've heard from educators and others, it's a little bit more challenging 
to maintain the interest of particularly younger kids when they're dealing with school via a computer. And, and the lack of that cohesive atmosphere in the classroom, the lack of control that a teacher might otherwise have to keep everybody attentive and focused is a little more difficult. So we're going to need, I think, not just new hardware, but maybe even new software that's more engaging and, and that also creates an environment and an experience for the kids as much as the teachers so that they're fully engaged in the process. And we're seeing, obviously, from, you know, from a core perspective, that infrastructure money is going there. The government infrastructure money is going in that direction. So it really affects the whole family. And the other aspect of it is the remote work, of course. Yep. Another big trend and opportunity that we saw in 2020. Do you believe that Governments will continue to invest in remote work and hybrid office environments in the future. Oh yeah, <laughs> talk, talk Load to a question there for you. <laughs> talk to anybody you know who has spent the last sixteen months in their pajamas working from the home office, and yeah. they're saying, you know what, I don't ever want to do this again. Now, there's going to have to be a balance, and again, it goes back to I would say most companies are reasonably well positioned for this, except for very you know, high-touch consumer-facing businesses where the employees actually have to be on the job, leisure and hospitality, travel and the like. It's, that can't be done virtually. But the office of the future, and this is still being hotly debated among CEOs who in some respects feel that team building and culture can't be developed fully in a fully remote setting. And then there are employees who are saying, listen, my productivity went up by the length of time I didn't spend commuting. You know, so I would rather stay at home, work at my computer, make my phone calls. And if I have to go on the road or go into the office, I'd prefer to do it on a less regular basis. And so there's a big debate as to whether it's three days of the week in the office, two days at home, or God knows how many days at home for, you know, there's some talk now about creating a four-day work week in the United States, which has been done, obviously, in, in some European settings and countries. So I think most of that investment is more likely to come from the private sector than the public sector, except for small businesses who may need additional assistance to help create an online presence that would support their business in the event that we have another issue. And so I think when you look at the Small Business Administration, they've gone to great lengths to, to spend money and help support independent proprietors, small businesses and the like. Uh, to get first get through the pandemic. And I think ultimately they may very well help them in backstopping their operations so they can remain functioning if there's not just necessarily a health scare, but uh, other types of, of, of outages that we might have in the future. Well, that's great insight. Are there any other thoughts that you have for our partners on the, on the uh, line today that might gain some insight into how they can best position themselves to uh, capture opportunity and, and these uh, funds that, that will be invested into all these programs? Anything at all? I think any company that, that has an eye towards the future has to understand that, that technological change is going to happen extremely rapidly going forward. Just as an anecdote, we heard last year, for instance, that five or six years worth of technological advancement occurred in the first five to six months of the pandemic. So when you look at the likes of an Amazon or a Walmart or a Costco or a Target that had, from a retail perspective, an enormous technological footprint, they were online, they were everywhere, there was contact-free delivery. When you look at the various companies that invested in new technologies, and that happened even in the quick-serve restaurants where Chipotle and McDonald's made some extraordinarily important investments in providing again, delivery or hands-free service or the like, uh, that allowed them not just to, again, not just to thrive, but to survive in this environment. So any business really needs a digital backstop 
needs to access to the extent possible government funds that are available. Now, I think there's one caveat in the recent infrastructure bill. Some of the funds that were put towards pandemic assistance in the SBA are being recalled to help fund the infrastructure bill. So I think, you know, some expertise in the area of accessing government money is probably going to be required for small businesses and others who really want to engage in a partnership with the federal government to help grow their businesses, modernize them, and make sure that they're not going to be put out of business if and when the next either pandemic or disruption hits. Uh, That's great. And there's been also a lot of buzz around supply chain and plans therein that sort of tie to, to business continuity, disaster, et cetera. Do you have any insights around around that particular aspect? Yeah, I mean, we've we've clearly, as a nation, underinvested uh, there, and there's some money coming for that. It's it's probably still not enough. I think that, I, I think the government for now, I think several administrations, and I've I've heard this from CEOs and CFOs over the course of the last 15, 20 years, that we are not close to a point where we can keep bad actors from infiltrating any of our systems. I mean, you look at that at the governmental level and it happened at the Office of Personnel Management several years ago and other areas of of government. You look at it in private sector and Continental Pipeline Company along with JBS, a big beef producer, have both been victims of cyber attacks. So it's going to be, I think, a combined effort of government and the private sector reallocating dollars towards cybersecurity. And one of the interesting things I learned some years back is that as intruders use backdoor entry, to gain access to your computer systems and whatever other systems you're operating, they will root around for as long as 18 months exploring vulnerabilities within particular systems, steal information, maybe outbid you on a contract. And so the intrusion protection software that was designed and the other types of hardware that was put in place clearly isn't adequate. So I think every business owner has to try to, one, find uh, an ally in government who can help with this. And then two, also certainly put additional capital to work because it's it, we're not sufficiently protected. And we've seen that now time and time again, that denial of service type operations or hacks or uh, cyber theft is, is running rampant and, and we have yet to stop it. Well, I, I really appreciate it. And I know uh, the folks on the line do uh, your time today. You know, So thank you so much, Ron, and to our partners for joining us today for another ScanSource Power Hour. If you want to learn more about funding opportunities and trends in government, visit scansource.com slash government for more information. We really hope you enjoyed spending time with us today. Be sure to join us again for our next Ready, Set, Scale. And in the meantime, let us know if you have any questions or any suggestions for future podcast topics by going to scansource.com slash RSS question. We love hearing from you, so come on, send us a note.